Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The Volume. It's Hoops Tonight presented by FanDuel. The NBA season is kicking into gear and there's no better place to get in on the action than with FanDuel. The app is safe and secure. Getting your money out is super easy. You can jump into the action at any time during the game with live betting. And I love building those same game parlays. And FanDuel is now live in Ohio, so use promo code JasonT and download the FanDuel app today to start making every moment more. 21 plus in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Virginia, and Ohio. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXTSTEP to 53342 in Arizona. Call one 888 789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. Call 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. Visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. Call 1-877-770-STOP in LA. Visit www.mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Dial one 877 8 Hope and Y or text Hope and Y to 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I hope all of you guys had a great weekend. I just got back in last night from a weekend of skiing up in Flagstaff, an old dormant volcano up there. We had a huge winter storm come through on Saturday, and so it was like 15 inches of fresh powder in blizzard conditions with no visibility. I've become a decent skier over the course of the last half decade or so, 
But uh, man, did that kick my ass. It just was a completely different type of challenge. It was so different than like groomed skiing. And so it was a fun experience, but man, I got my butt kicked. Uh, I'm excited to be home though and to talk some basketball. We took a little break last week to zoom out and do some uh, mid-season, pre- uh, mid-season review type of stuff. We're going to get back into our normal cadence this week with instant reactions and deep dives into specific teams and things along those lines. So today we're going to be covering the Warriors-Wizards. Um, and just the way they've been playing the Warriors in particular, since Steph went out or since Steph came back, uh, the, uh, Boston Celtics on a seven game win streak and the Memphis Grizzlies on a 10 game win streak. So we're going to tie in on those two teams, the best team in the East and the best team in the West right now. And then the Los Angeles Lakers, even though they beat the Rockets last night, they did lose back to back games involving clutch situations to the Mavericks and the Sixers. And those clutch situations have been a problem for the Lakers all year. So I wanted to dive deep into that specific topic. And then tomorrow we'll have three instant reaction videos to Raps Bucks, Blazers Nuggets, and 76ers Clippers. We got a good slate of games tonight. You guys know the drill. Before we get started, subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And if for whatever reason you guys miss one of these videos and you can't get back over to YouTube to finish, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. And last but not least, before we get started, you guys have heard me talk about Game Time, the fastest growing ticketing app in the United States. If you're looking to get tickets to any NBA, NHL, NFL playoff games, or even a concert this weekend, Game Time has amazing last-minute deals on tickets to all of those. I'm trying to get out for Oregon, Arizona on the 2nd of February. It's a game that I'm trying to go to with my wife, and you can get in the door with Game Time for $8 or in the lower bowl for $40. Their whole interface is super user-friendly, and the deals are great. I highly encourage you guys check it out. No matter where you live, Get out and have some fun this week. Download the GameTime app, enter your email, and redeem code HOOPS for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, enter your email, then code HOOPS, that's H-O-O-P-S, for $20 off your first purchase. Download GameTime today. Last-minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. All right, let's talk some basketball. So the Warriors, they were trailing the Wizards mid-fourth quarter, kind of a recurring theme this season. They were trailing them 106-98. to Then Draymond got them back in the game with a couple of big plays. He hit a hockey assist out of a split cut that ended in a Dante DiVincenzo layup, and then he ended up hitting a three on a pick and pop at the top of the key. Kind of an encouraging trend for the Warriors with Draymond. Draymond is shooting 35% from three in his last 27 games. If you really look back to what made Draymond an All-NBA guy, like when he was second-team All-NBA back in 2016, it was all the playmaking, it was all of the defensive stuff that he can do, the defensive versatility in particular, but it was also this kind of semi-reliable, totally respectable pick-and-pop shooting from three that really tied it together. It kind of was, that was, you know, that's become his one real weakness over the years, but it's starting to trend in the right direction. He's been shooting pretty damn well over his last 27 games. So that's super encouraging for the Warriors in the grand scheme of things. And then from there, when Draymond got it back uh, to a close game, Steph just took over. Huge step back three, just a ridiculous high difficulty step back three that gave them the lead. He had a couple more threes uh, or jumper and a three that were daggers later on in the game. Then he also had, there was kind of a fun sequence where um, they were running a pick and roll at the, on the right wing, and it was Porzingis that was in an ice coverage on Steph. So whenever you run a pick and rolls on the wing, usually teams are going to try to force you towards the baseline because the rotations are easier. So Draymond comes up and tries to set the screen towards the middle, but the on-ball defender is forcing, I think it was Monty Morris, but he was forcing Steph away from the screen. 
and Kristaps Porzingis was way out on the left side waiting for Steph. So they're basically trying to funnel Steph towards that right side of the floor from the right wing. And Draymond, it was kind of a really smart play from Steph because Draymond's like trying to find an angle to set the screen so that Steph can get back towards the middle. And instead, Steph just leads him with like a push pass that catches Draymond in a run towards the rim. And because Kristaps Porzingis was way over on the left side to or way towards the right side if you're facing the basket to try to contain in that ice coverage, Draymond got a wide open uh, layup with his left hand. I think it ended up getting goaltended. Or actually, this one I think ended in a uh, foul, and then he had a separate layup in a Jordan Poole pick and roll. But it's kind of been cool over the years to see. We've we've seen with Draymond and Steph just all of the repetition that they've had over a decade of really high-level basketball that has given them just a counter to use in every single one of these situations. We've seen the way that Draymond can punish teams by going to quick dribble handoffs with Steph when they're not guarding Draymond appropriately or in the traps with Steph. You see Draymond in the short roll making plays, Steph throwing that loop pass over the top. They're trying to sneak a bounce pass into the pocket so that Draymond can make a read. And then it's kind of cool to see them beat that ice coverage with basically just like a super unique little leading pass towards the rim while Draymond's unguarded. That's just the advantage that comes from continuity in years and years of practice. Steph finished with 41 points on 28 shots. It felt good to see him get back to that level because he really wasn't that good the first three games back, which was to be expected. He's a skill-oriented player and rhythm is a huge part of the game of basketball for skill-oriented players. You need to kind of calibrate your lift and calibrate your touch to NBA speed, which is impossible to replicate anywhere off of an NBA game, even in practice. So it was it's good to see him kind of get back to that. That's his fourth 40-point game of the season. Andrew Wiggins also did excellent defensive work on Kyle Kuzma, forced him into a bunch of bad shots and two turnovers down the stretch. And then Anthony Lamb, I thought one of the biggest plays of the game is 118-114, and Kuzma's uh, isolating on Andrew Wiggins. He's driving towards the right with Wiggins on his hip, and Anthony Lamb steps in and takes a charge. And Kuzma actually made a little floater, and it was called an and one on the floor, but they challenged it, and they ended up overturning it and calling it a charge. But because Steph went down and hit a jumper on the next possession, it was like a five-point swing in a four-point game. So just like a you know Austin Rivers... I, one of the things, there's three specific topics that I want to hit just kind of random uh, today. It's something I, I, all the time I'm like scrolling through Twitter and I have like a quick take on something that I see and uh, it's not enough of a take to squeeze into a segment on this show, but I don't really have a chance to talk about it. So I like to try to squeeze them in when I can. I don't know if you guys saw that Austin Rivers video that was going viral from a podcast this week where he basically talked about how highlight culture is ruining basketball at the lower levels. Essentially, he was like, you know, I got a hoop mixtape, but it was because I was one of the top end guys. It was like an honor. And it was based on you being like literally one of the best players in the, in the country for high school. Whereas now like everyone's getting filmed. They're actively hunting highlights and trying to make these like social media clips based on, you know, dunking on someone or crossing somewhere over or whatever it might be. And Austin's point was like, actually, we should be celebrating winning basketball plays because those are the things that actually make a good basketball player, which is the kind of thing that actually makes it to the NBA. There are a lot of guys in the world that can dribble the hell out of the basketball, that can shoot the hell out of the basketball, that can do a lot of things, but they're not in the NBA because they can't functionally do a, a play a role on an NBA court by providing a bunch of winning responsibilities. Anthony Lamb is not the prettiest looking basketball player in the world when it comes to his skill stuff, but he has found a role on this team doing dirty work. And that is just a, a small play 
sliding over and taking a charge in a pivotal moment in a four-point game down the stretch that frequently gets overlooked and never gets enough attention. And that's what I liked about what Austin Rivers had said. And so I just wanted to kind of hammer that home. Like that's a play that went under the radar in this game, but Anthony Lamb taking one charge was just a massive play to help the Warriors win this game. Um, the Warriors are 2-2 two and two since Steph came back. If you look at it, it's that awful loss to Phoenix where they really didn't try. Uh, there was the blowout win in the Alamo Dome uh, against the NBA's record largest crowd against the Spurs. Then they lost to Chicago, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, and then they beat Washington. So kind of an uneven start. I wanted to zoom in on that Chicago loss because it was kind of frustrating uh, tactically. You know, you guys know I, I think like a coach. I, I coach high school kids, and then obviously just with my playing background, I've, I always I, I always think that way. Think from the perspective of the coach, and I was really frustrated with their strategy on Nick Vucevic because Vucevic just absolutely torched the Warriors in this game. He had 43 points, but it was all out of pick and pop, like just pick and pop threes, pick and pop, pump fake, attacking a closeout, making a little shot. Uh, scoring in the short roll because you know Nick Vucevic is a flawed player but he is a good player and there's specific things that he's very good at and it's that shooting touch it's that little bit of post work and it's that little bit of short roll stuff that he can do um, you have to switch against that type of big I, I, I always tell you guys the kryptonite for a drop coverage is either a guard that can regularly hit pull-up jump shots or a big that can hit pick and pop jump shots. As soon as you run into that type of personnel, you have to switch. Switch up your coverage in some way, shape, or form. Because if you don't, you are going to give high-quality shots to players that are in the league specifically because they can hit that type of shot. You, If you switch, you at least force them to beat you with an isolation or a post-up. It gives you. It also gives you a much better chance to load up and help side and rotate out of it and at least force them to take a contested spot up three somewhere else on the floor rather than a wide open one. Only four of Nick Vucevic's points came out of post-ups against switches and pick and roll. There was one in the first quarter where Clay Thompson got switched onto him and he hit a little hook shot. And then there was another one in the second half where Anthony Lamb got switched onto him. And on the post-entry pass, he tried to like reach around in front and they ended up calling a pass on the entry pa- uh, foul on the entry pass. But 23 of Vucevic's 43 points were picking and popping. Or a pick and pop that got worked around and he was wide open for three on the back end. That's more than half. So like schematically, that cost you a game. Uh, A a flaw in a coverage that every single person in the world knows exists and personnel that can explicitly exploit that flaw, the Warriors didn't make the switch in their coverage. So there's kind of two ways to look at that. One, in a playoff series, the Warriors would switch out of that in all likelihood. If if Vucevic is torching you in pick and pop, you're going to end up switching or hedging and recovering or anything else other than what they did. Um, You know, in in, in a playoff series in general, teams are more inclined to switch when they need to. But in this game, failure to make that adjustment costs you a game and puts you at 21 and 22, which was below 500. So you had to go beat Washington to get above 500. And if you just take care of business against Nuke Vucevic with the simple adjustment, you win that game, and now you're two games over 500. And so that, that's where it's frustrating. Is like I, I get it. You know, that's not going to be an issue in the playoffs. I'm not worried about the Warriors somehow getting to the finals and losing to the Bulls because of Nick Vucevic. It's just a matter of uh, of the reality of their predicament, which is 
They're what the seven seed right now. They're 22 and 22. They need to make up ground in the standings to make sure they stay out of the plan and hopefully give themselves a home court advantage series, which is so important to this team that struggles a little bit on the road. There is urgency for them to get going. And it kind of was frustrating to see them trick off a game against the Bulls because of a simple coverage that should have been audibled out of. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Does the craziness of everyday life leave you feeling stressed and shedding? Since having kids, have you started to see a little more of your scalp? Are you unhappy with your hairline? When it comes to thinning hair, there are many root causes at play, and Nutrafol addresses them through a multi-targeted, whole-body approach. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement, with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, and faster-growing hair with less shedding. Physician-formulated with drug-free ingredients, Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting key root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism through whole-body health. Take their hair wellness quiz at Nutrafol.com for a personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription, or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day and you'll see results in three to six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker and healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code Hoops. That's H-O-O-P-S. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code Hoops, H-O-O-P-S. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code Hoops. Tip off the new year with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. New customers get $150 in free bets guaranteed when you place your first $5 bet. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Then you can bet on everything from the money line to point scores to threes drained. My favorite bet this week is the Atlanta Hawks on the road in Dallas on Wednesday. You can get them plus three and a half. The Hawks are in one of the phases of the season where they're having fun and actually playing good basketball. And Dallas is super thin in the front court and on the wing because of injuries. So I think it's a game where Atlanta's talent will carry them through. Plus, FanDuel even lets you combine your bets for a chance at a bigger payout with a same-game parlay. 
FanDuel is also now live in Ohio, so make sure you get in on the action with great offers for you now throughout January. So don't miss your chance to get $150 in free bets with promo code Jason T. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sportsbook partner of the NBA. Um, you know, there's a lot of people pointing to the Warriors and their 22 and 22 record as if the sky is falling. I continue to not be in that camp. I just think there are some specific realities about their situation because they're, they don't have a ton of depth, which won't matter as much when they get to the playoffs, but now it does. You can't take nights off anymore like the Phoenix Suns game. That just can't happen. If you're playing the Suns without all their guys, you have to win that game because of where, where you're at in the standings. And you might have to be a little bit more aggressive in your in-game adjustments instead of just trying to eat innings in the regular season because you don't have that margin for error anymore in the standings. It's just the reality of their situation. All right, so we're going to talk about the Lakers, but really quickly, I want to hit my second random take that I was telling you guys about that I'm trying to hit from Twitter. Uh, so one of the things that I've seen is LeBron after his uh, interview, or in his interview with Dave McMenamin, he was asked about him being, uh, uh, about like the, uh, the all-time scoring record with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and LeBron but, uh, brought up the fact that he doesn't, that he views himself as a pass-first player. And then that turned into this whole thing where all the people who don't like LeBron were like, that's BS. Look at how many field goal attempts he takes. Like, this is ridiculous. And then all the LeBron fans coming in and being like, no, no, he really is pass first. And everyone just gets dumber as a result because let's actually think about what that says. To say that you're a pass first basketball player would imply that given the decision to take a high quality shot yourself or to get a high quality shot for your teammate, that you would pass the ball to your teammate instead of looking for your own shot. And not only does that situation very rarely take place in an NBA game because the defense is kind of designed to take away one of the two, but in general, the only pass-first players that I can remember in NBA history where they're actively hunting passes are guys that can't score. I'm talking about like Jason Kidd or Rajon Rondo, you know, or a modern example of that. And he, it's not that he can't score. Tyrese Halliburton's a much better scorer, but... Tyrese Halliburton is hunting his passes a lot because he's not a, you know, 30 point per game type of guy, you know? And so like, I, wh wh who are the top tier playmakers in the league? I've always said four guys, right? And Chris Paul's kind of falling off this list, but it's Chris Paul, Nikola Jokic, LeBron James, and Luka Doncic. Those are the four guys that I see incredibly high level reads from consistently, but they're all high volume scores. All three of those guys have been 30 point per game guys over the last few months. So are they, none of them are pass first. They're the best player on the floor in most of their games. Why would they give the ball to lesser basketball players if they didn't need to? So the semantics of that discussion is stupid. And I say that to LeBron as well. Like LeBron shouldn't be saying pass first because that doesn't make any damn sense. But it's not a criticism of him that he shoots a lot. He's LeBron James. He should shoot a lot. The dude's averaging like 37 since he turned 38 years old, which is completely ridiculous. But let's call it what it is. It's not that LeBron is a pass first player. It's that he's a great passer. And so what you're getting from LeBron is he is the all-time leading scorer, going to be the all-time leading scorer. And what's cool about it is that's just one of his great skills, and he has all these other great skills. That's what's interesting about the LeBron thing, not some weird semantic angle about being pass first. All right, that's it for my little mini LeBron take. Okay, so the Lakers have had a really interesting four-game stretch since their huge back-to-back -back wins against Atlanta and uh, in Sacramento. They rested LeBron in Denver and lost. Then they lost a double overtime heartbreaker to the Dallas Mavericks. Luka hit two separate step-back threes. Uh, well, I think one in regulation and one in OT that uh, elongated the game. Um, and then LeBron really had his first bad game in a month against Dallas. Just really struggled, particularly from the field in that game. And then they lost another heartbreaker to the 76ers two nights ago. 
LeBron goes for 35, 8, and 10. They're plus 19 in LeBron's minutes, but go minus 20 when he's off the floor and lose by one. And obviously we had the ridiculous possession with Russ on Joel Embiid at the end, which we'll talk about here in a minute. And then last night they beat Houston. LeBron goes for 48, 8, and 9, and they're plus 19 again in his minutes, but they only lose the LeBron minutes by 11 this time, so they're able to win the game by eight points. So really, if you look at it, it's a punt against Denver, a quality win, and then two heartbreaking clutch losses. And that's what I want to zoom in on today is the Lakers in clutch situations. So they are 10 in 11 in games that involve clutch situations this year. So 21 games, 11 losses, and they've been bad on both ends of the floor. 114.5 offensive rating, which is only okay, kind of middle of the pack for that type of situation, and 122.6 defensive rating, which is the third worst defensive rating in the entire league for teams that are in uh, clutch situations. So there's a bunch of that I want to get into here, but I'm just going to split it really simply into the Lakers on the defensive end of the floor and the Lakers on the offensive end of the floor. So, you know, on the defensive end of the floor, what do I always say about clutch situations? Clutch situations in the regular season are the closest thing we get to playoff basketball. And there's a couple of specific reasons why. One, both teams are more dialed in with their effort and execution. What that means is everyone's playing hard. No one's taking possessions off. And if they have details in their scheme, whether that's sprinting back in transition defense or that's you know this pick and roll coverage or this way to handle off-ball screens, those are the times of the game when they're going to be especially sharp, at least the good teams that you're going to play. Also, both teams have their best players on the floor. It's your closing five, right? That's why I talk about the playoffs differently as well. There are a lot of guys that get NBA regular season rotation minutes that would never play in a playoff series unless injuries force them to. You shrink down the rotations and you only play the guys that you trust to have out there. All the superstars bump up to like 40 minutes. Most of the mid-level starters bump up to like 36, 37 minutes. And a lot of the guys that come off the bench might only play 10, 12 minutes. They're like one shift players. You have your starters, you have a few guys that come in for one shift, and then you go back to your starters and then you repeat in the second half. That's the way the closing lineups are too. It's your five best guys. So there aren't as many weaknesses for you to exploit on any end of the floor. And when you couple that with the effort and the execution, the game is super slow, none of the sets work, and it just becomes about personnel and matchups and which guys you have in that setting that can beat coverages in a tight half-court environment. This is why I never get super critical of brute force offenses during the regular season. A lot of you guys remember during my preseason previews, I talked about specific teams like the Nets and the Clippers as teams that were brute force offenses. I don't know if you've noticed this, but every time I've been critical of the Clippers this year, I've never said like, oh, I don't think they're going to be able to score, even though their offensive rating is trash. And it's because I actually think that when they get into the postseason, they will be able to score. Because if they have Kawhi Leonard and Paul George healthy... They're just going to be able to create advantages better than most teams, and they just have more aggregate offensive skill. Yeah, it can get ugly in the regular season when their offense is super rudimentary and it's just a lot of high pick and roll and ISO, but during the the playoffs, like that's literally what you need to do to succeed, and the Clippers just have a lot of really good players that can do that kind of stuff. I always just say I'm worried about the Clippers' health. That's where I'm concerned. I don't really concern myself with brute force offenses in the regular season. I'm concerned about that slowdown environment and what your specific matchups are. Now, during the regular season, there is a lot of fast and loose basketball where you'll see random lineups, guys that don't usually play that much, guys you would never see in the playoffs, lots of transition possessions, very little half-court defense, a lot of fast and loose basketball. 
that's time when you can really succeed playing hard or just sprinting up and down the floor in transition or having guys that have big weaknesses when you can focus them into their strengths in that fast and loose phase of the game. And the Lakers have been able to do a lot of good things in those environments because of how good Russell Westbrook is in transition, because of how good LeBron James has been playing, how good Thomas Bryant has been running up and down in transition. They've been able to manufacture a lot of wins, and they've been hovering around, well, I think they're 9-8 and eight since Anthony Davis went out. That's awesome. But it should be better than it is, and it's because of those clutch situations. When you get defensively down into the end of these games, you can't gimmick your way around anymore. Suddenly it's like, oh, wait. We can't play Thomas Bryant. Against Philly, they went with Wenyan Gabriel. Against Houston, they went with no center. LeBron James at center because they can't actually play him. You'll get attacked too much in those situations. Now the game is slowed down in the half court, and you've got Dennis Schroeder and Russell Westbrook with Troy Brown Jr., who's more of a two-guard, playing a three, and Juan Toscano Anderson, who's literally 6'6 and like 215 pounds, so he's smaller than me, playing power forward. For the Lakers. And then LeBron James, who, yeah, he can play some small ball center, but it only like if he goes up against a really big guy, there's some limitations there, right? So like defensively, they can gimmick their way to a solid defense. Like the Lakers are 12th in defense in January. That's solid. Guys have been fighting, guys have been competing, but in clutch situations, they still can't get stops because in that setting, it's no more about it's no longer about gimmicks. It's about your personnel, and the Lakers just don't have the type of personnel they need. When they played Wenyan Gabriel against Philly at center, he's 205 pounds. I literally weigh 25 pounds more than Wenyan Gabriel, and he was b- battling with Joel Embiid. Like, like, what exactly do you guys expect to happen in those situations? So uh, at the end of the day, like, um, when the game slows down for the Lakers, you can attack Dennis Schroeder because he's small. You're going to attack Juan Toscano Anderson, LeBron James, and Wenyan Gabriel on the interior because you're just bigger than those guys. And most importantly, there's absolutely no rim protection. So if you beat somebody off the dribble from the perimeter, there's nobody waiting for you that's going to block your shot around the rim. And, and that's just what makes the Lakers so easy to score on in crunch time. They will not get stops in crunch time until Anthony Davis gets back. And then when they get to the highest levels in the playoffs, they're going to need that forward position to be bigger, to have a bigger perimeter player in order to alleviate some of those post-game defense concerns. And then on the offensive end of the floor, it really comes down to three things. There's their spot-up shooting problem, which we've talked to death. There's a Russ problem, and there's a LeBron problem. So no one's really off the hook. Um, As it comes to spot-up shooting, like I said, late-game situations mimic playoff situations. They are going to be trapping you in the half court and loading up in the paint, and none of your sets are going to work. So, no matter what, your your best option, you really are only going to have two options as a primary ball handler. If I'm LeBron James, and I'm in a late-game situation for the Lakers or in a postseason environment, I'm going to be dribbling, the paint is going to be completely packed with bodies, and I'm going to have two options. Either I can take an off-the-dribble jump shot over all of that congestion, or I can swing it to the wing to a spot-up shooter that can make the, make the other team pay for overloading in the paint. But the Lakers are 35% on uncontested threes this year. That's 27th in the NBA. So they're the fourth worst wide-open three-point shooting team in the league. They are also just 27% on threes in clutch situations when the game's within five with less than five minutes left. That's 24th in the NBA. So when teams load up on the Lakers and LeBron and Russ are making kickout passes, 
They just can't make teams pay for that. There's no penalty for you going against the Lakers to load up the paint. So that is problem number one, the lack of competent spot-up shooting on the wing that that gives them problems. And, and, you know, and first of all, there's a huge difference between, like, I occasionally knock down a three and what a real knockdown shooter is like. And I'll give you an example. So Boyan Bogdanovich plays for the Pistons. He's shooting just 41.5% from three this year. And if you're a Laker fan, you might be like, oh, that's only 3% higher than Lonnie Walker. But there's a huge difference because of the way they are guarded, which is something I talk about all the time. It's not just about your three-point percentage. It's like your ability to convert three-point shots into point base, uh, points based on the quality of the three-point shots. So for instance, more than half of Lonnie Walker's three-point attempts, about 60%, are wide open, meaning the defender is at least six feet away. And he's only shooting 38% on him, right? That's an issue, okay? Now we go to Boyan Bogdanovich. He takes six threes a game. Most of them are heavily guarded, but when he's wide open, he shoots 50%. When the defender is at least six feet away from Boyan Bogdanovich, so he's completely unguarded, he knocks down half of them. So that's the difference. When I'm looking at Boyan Bogdanovich and Lonnie Walker, yeah, he's only 3% better from three, but he's deadly accurate when he's wide open, and he's still shooting a higher percentage even on the contested threes. Than, uh, than, than Lonnie Walker can get. So that's why I've been saying the Lakers need to target like a real shooting forward because in those crunch time situations, now Boyan Bogdanovich's man cannot leave him because in two possessions, he's going to make one of them, which is three points in two possessions, which is a 150 offensive rating, which is going to win you a lot of basketball games. That's why that position is so specifically important. So step one, spot up shooting. Two, Russell Westbrook. Again, he thrives in that open floor nature of the middle portions of the game of basketball. That's why he's done so well coming off the bench for stretches this year for the Lakers. He pushes the pace really well. That, that allows him to avoid those half-court sets. And he creates a boatload of good shots with rim pressure. But when we get to clutch situations, he's 12 for 35 from the field. And he's really inefficient when he has the ball in his hands. And he can't make you pay when he's off the ball, he's also a really poor decision maker. So for instance, that last play against Philly, I know Darvin Ham's like, oh, I'll take my chances with Russ on their center any day of the week. And it's like, okay, that's cool that you think that, but the other team is freaking ecstatic that you're attacking Embiid because the book is out on Russell Westbrook. His only real success at this point is bullying smaller guards when it comes to half-court environments. Most teams are willingly putting their center on Russ because he can help off when someone else has the ball and they don't have to worry about him beating beating you with spot-up shooting. And then in isolation situations, Russ is such a bad pull-up jump shooter that Embiid can just back off and protect the rim. And like, yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of Lakers fans complaining about foul calls. Russ got fouled on that play. Yes, Joel Embiid was grabbing his wrist. That's a foul. LeBron got fouled on a drive against the Mavericks. Christian Wood elbowed him down on his left arm when he was trying to gather. But historically in NBA history, especially at the end of games, and very much so in the playoffs, when you drive to the basket, there's a shit ton of contact. And they're probably not going to call it. So, I, I mean, we can say that, hey, it was a foul, but they didn't blow the whistle. They usually don't blow the whistle, which means you have to be prepared for that. Russell Westbrook isolating a center in Joel Embiid, but not just a center. One of the best defensive centers in the league was just a really obnoxiously poor decision. And it ending poorly was very predictable. Russ, if he's going to stay with the Lakers, has to play in just the middle portion of the games, which is exactly what almost every sixth man 
type of guy has done in NBA history. They play him in the fast and loose portions of the game, and then they don't play him in crunch time. Now, usually for sixth men, it has to do with defensive limitations. But for Russ, it has to do with those offensive limitations in the half court. When you combine that with his volatility, which volatility will get you beat, it just makes him really tough to play in crunch time. There's some crazy stats with Russ in crunch time. The Lakers have played 21 games this year that involved clutch situations. Now, again, that's less than five minutes within five points. They are 7-11 when Russ plays in those clutch games. And when Russ doesn't get any clutch minutes, they're 3-0. Overall this season, in clutch minutes, they are minus 16 with Russ on the floor and plus 4 with him off. So if the Lakers are going to keep Russ, they need to use him like every other sixth man in NBA history. Play him as 25 minutes during the middle portions of the game. Don't have him in there when we get to crunch time. And then lastly is LeBron. Um, So accepting the reality that the Lakers don't have good spot-up shooting and they're going to pack the paint, what do I always say about beating teams that pack the paint? You have to be able to either kick to spot-up shooters, which aren't going to make shots right now, or you can knock down pull-up jump shots over the top of the defense. And this is where LeBron's shooting slump has been a big problem. This year, he's shooting just 33% on pull-up jump shots, and in particular, his three-point shot has failed him, especially in crunch time. He's just 3-for-18 in crunch time situations for the Lakers from three. That's a huge problem. And what's sad about it is he's actually been really damn good in every other way during clutch situations. He is 21-for-36 from two, During uh, crunch time situations this year, that's 58%. He has 18 assists to just three turnovers. But if your spot-up shooters aren't going to hit shots, you need to be able to knock down pull-up jump shots to win games in crunch time, just like he did last night against the Rockets. Two biggest plays of the game, the last two possessions, two high pick and rolls with LeBron James, one a pull-up jump shot going to his left, and another a pull-up jump shot going to his right where he banked it in off the glass. He needs to knock that shot down in order to help the Lakers in crunch time situations. That's what the other top-tier stars in the league do. It's bizarre. LeBron is just having a bad jump-shooting season, but it's something to keep an eye on. So like as we kind of zoom out really quick for the Lakers, they have four issues in crunch time. They don't have Anthony Davis, which makes it impossible for them to get stops. They have no spot-up shooting, which makes it really difficult for them to, uh, to make teams pay for packing the paint. Russ's value significantly declines when he gets into the half court, so he shouldn't play any clutch minutes. And LeBron's pull-up shooting slump has been an issue, although he shot really well last night. So really, get AD healthy. The report is that he's going to be back for several games before the All-Star break, so that's encouraging, probably in the next two weeks or so. They need to trade for a competent forward like a Boyan Bogdanovich or a Kyle Kuzma to give LeBron and Anthony Davis real spot-up threats to throw out to. And then don't play Russ in crunch time and have LeBron hit more pull-up jump shots That's really the recipe to cleaning up these crunch time situations. Dude, look at the schedule. Look at where they're at in the standings. You convert three or four of these crunch time losses into wins. All of a sudden, they're up around, they're they're like the fifth seed in the West right now. So that's a lot that can be cleaned up there just by some, some execution stuff and game plan stuff with the Lakers. All right, moving on to the Memphis Grizzlies. So I, before we talk about the Grizzlies, I want to do my last little quick hitter. So um, I've seen a lot of people complaining about Giannis and acting as though he's fallen off a cliff and he's not the same player. Now, there are some statistics to watch out for. He's shooting like 27% outside the restricted area this year. That's awful. But everything comes down to the fact that the team, because of injuries, is significantly less talented than Giannis is usually playing with. 
Way too often when we're discussing individual player performance, especially with the box score, we don't appropriately factor in the circumstances around you. This is why I've been so high on LeBron lately and why I keep telling you guys he's still a top five player in the league. He's playing with one of the worst supporting casts in basketball and playing at an extremely high level and winning all of his shifts. That's why I've been pushing that so much. But what like, what happens when you lose all of your spot-up shooting? All of a sudden, teams can pack the paint. If I'm an on-ball defender and I'm guarding Giannis and they have lots of spot-up shooting, I need to give ground and concede shots to Giannis for the sake of me being able to protect the rim at least as best as I can against that enormous human being. But if all the guys are behind me and they've got my back, I can now press up into Giannis in a way that I can't usually do. Now, all of those perimeter jump shots are more contested. Now I can get into his handle a little bit more, which allows me to disrupt his rhythm. And so as a result, his perimeter shooting has gone down. One, LeBron's having a really rough perimeter shooting season. You want to know why? Because he's on his worst shooting team since he came into the league, which literally, or for a long time, which has put him in a situation where defenders are pressing up on him, his shot quality is lower, and the jumpers are missing. When was the last time LeBron had a really poor jump shooting season? 2015, when half the year J.R. Smith wasn't there before the trade deadline, and we got to the playoffs, and Kevin Love got hurt, and then Kyrie Irving was playing hurt the entire time, and then eventually did get hurt. The worst shooting team he was around, a lot of Mozgov, a lot of Matthew Dellavedova, a lot of Sean Marion. Suddenly, they're helping up, helping behind LeBron, pushing up onto him on the ball. The shot quality goes down. So all I'm saying is like, look, is it true that Giannis is not a very good perimeter shooter? Yeah, but you knew that in 2021 when he was holding up a trophy. Okay, so don't don't overthink this, guys. The Bucks are down all their spot of shooting. That makes it a lot harder for team uh, for Giannis to play the same way that he played before. That's why he's shooting poorly. He's still the best player in the world, in my opinion. I'm not going to change that unless he goes into the postseason with a healthy Bucks and doesn't play well, or unless I see somebody visibly play better in a postseason run. Let's not rehash the history of Giannis over a little bit of bad basketball. All right, let's get moving. So the Grizzlies, they beat up on the Suns yesterday for their 10th consecutive win. Some quality wins in there too. They beat the Kings, the Pelicans, and the Pacers, but they are in a relatively easy stretch of their schedule. Since the start of December, the Memphis Grizzlies are 18-4, which is the best record in the NBA. They are ninth in offense, which is driven by the fact that they get 20 fast break points per game over this stretch, which is second in the NBA in that span. They are first in defense and fourth in rebounding, so they're winning the way they usually do. They're defending really well. They're forcing a lot of turnovers. They're running it down your throat in transition, and then when they get into that half-court environment, it's a steady diet of John Morant with everybody relentlessly attacking the offensive glass. I, a couple of specific things I wanted to hit on. Uh, John Morant's MVP push and the Jaron Jackson, Brandon Clark grouping. So um, Memphis Grizzlies fans are going to want John Morant to get a lot of MVP consideration, but I wanted to kind of go over his case a little bit with you guys. And I'm wanted, and i really curious to hear your guys' opinion. So please drop your opinions in the comments. Jaw is averaging 28-6-8 this year on 56% true shooting, which is fine. The Grizzlies are four points better per 100 possessions when he's on the floor versus when he's off, and they have the second best record in the league. Two games back of Boston. So, on the surface, looks like a really damn good MVP case. But let's take a closer look. What is my MVP criteria? If you guys remember, best player in the league, are you in that conversation? Are you the best player on the best team in the league? So, basically, individual success, team success, and then lastly, value. Like, how desperately does the team need you in order to succeed? So, let's look at the best player in the league thing first. 
I think Jaw's having an unbelievable season, but there are probably eight players who are absolutely playing better all around basketball than John Morant. Giannis playing better ball than Jaw this year. Nikola Jokic playing better ball than Jaw this year. Joel Embiid playing better ball than Jaw this year. Kevin Durant playing better ball than Jaw this year. LeBron James, yeah, he's playing a he's a better player than Jaw right now. Luka Doncic, yeah, he's better than Jaw. Steph Curry, better than Jaw. Jason Tatum, better than Jaw right now. Now, five of those guys are also on great teams that will get MVP consideration. Giannis, Jokic, Embiid, KD, and Tatum. All five of those guys are also right near the top of the standing, so you're not going to get any sort of leg up there with the Grizzlies and their record. And all five of those guys are much, much, much better defensive players than John Morant. So if all of those other factors are relatively close, John's just going to lose to those five guys. He probably won't even get a top, uh, he probably won't even finish top five in voting. Now we move on to the most valuable portion. So this Grizzlies roster is insanely talented. So they're pretty damn good without him, just like they were last year. They've won four straight games when John Morant doesn't play, and they're only four points better per 100 possessions when John Morant is on the floor. With Giannis, they're plus five on off. With Jokic, they're plus 24 on off. With Embiid, they're plus 12 on off. With Kevin Durant, they're plus 12 on off. With Jason Tatum, they're plus six on off. So you get the point. Once again, if the teams are all close, and all, all five of those guys are going to get the nod over John Morant. So this is where his opportunity is. It's the best team in the league phase here. If the Grizzlies are this good and they stay healthy and they maintain that for the rest of the season, they might be able to separate themselves from the rest of the field in the standings. If the Grizzlies finish with the best record in the league with several games separating them and the next best team, now you got to start thinking about John Morant as a dead serious MVP candidate. But right now, I'm sorry, Memphis fans. It's not a take about Ja. He's young. He's incredible. He's exciting. That dunk he had the other night was just completely absurd. I'm a huge Ja fan. But... He's not MVP this year, at least not yet, and he needs a lot more to go his way in order to really, truly enter that conversation. Uh, Jared Jackson Jr., 17-5-7, leads the league in stocks. That steals plus blocks. He is now the runaway favorite for Defensive Player of the Year. FanDuel has him at minus 135 to win, and Brooke Lopez in second place at plus 550. He's also giving you 1.16 points per possession in ISO, which is 18th in the league among players who have run at least 15 ISOs. And he's shooting 37% from three on four attempts, which gives you that pick and pop stuff that I was talking about. But he's also been getting a lot of threes trailing the play in transition. It's a classic way to attack teams in their transition defense. The center loves to run back to the rim. It's the way they train him ever since he was a kid. It's the first responsibility for the big in transition defense. And if the big trails the play on offense... He's probably going to get some wide open threes from the top of the key, and that's where John Moran, or uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. does a lot of damage. But what I wanted to, what the reason why I brought up Jaron Jackson is the pairing with Brandon Clark is super interesting. If you guys remember, after the Grizzlies beat the Pelicans, which I believe was like a week or so ago, I talked about how I really liked the Jaron Jackson and uh, Desmond or Jaron Jackson and uh, Brandon Clark pairing in that lineup, and it was a huge part of how the Grizzlies won that game. But if you remember, I looked into their uh, their numbers when the two of them played. Excuse me, when the two of them played together that year, and it really wasn't that great. Um, and it, there was, you know, the data didn't really match up with what I had seen with my eye test. But what I said was, I hope they go to that lineup more frequently because I think it could work. And they've been riding that combination a ton during this win streak, and now for the season. In 548 possessions with Brandon Clark and Jaron Jackson on the floor together, the Grizzlies are plus 12 
per 100 possessions, which is fantastic. And they have a 102 defensive rating, which is absolutely stifling. When you put two athletes of that caliber in your front court and they're consistently flying around trying to block shots, it's terrifying. It dissuades people from even trying to drive to the basket. And it's a huge part of what has made this Grizzlies defense so good. And then lastly, Desmond Bain. He's the biggest swing factor for this team. I've been talking about that nonstop because the one glaring weakness with the Grizzlies is their half-court offense. And it's been a little concerning because even though Jaw's still playing really well, his jump shooting, particularly from three, has really, really uh, um, declined. And so that's going to be concerning in a half-court environment. You need Desmond Bain to be a legitimate second side creator or a guy that can create when Jaw's on the bench in order to give you a chance to win a significant um, to, to make a significant playoff run. Uh, Desmond Bain's first nine games back from the injury, uh, um, 17 points per game on 39% shooting, which is not very good, but he's a rhythm-based player. Last two games, 27 points per game on 65% shooting. So he's starting to get his rhythm back. The Grizzlies desperately need him to be great. And when they get into the postseason, they're going to attack John Morant defensively and try to get out and transition and avoid the Grizzlies' half-court environment. And then they're going to try to stop the Grizzlies from their transition attack. So you need to have another guy who can create shots off the bounce. And Desmond Bain is going to be the guy to watch when they get to that point. All right, quickly before we get out of here, the Boston Celtics. So they won again in Charlotte last night. Jason Tatum, 51-9-5. It's his first 50-point game of the year, but that's Jason Tatum's seventh 40-point game of the year, which is insane. He's plus 500 to win MVP right now. Uh, which I think is the fourth best odds. I think that's a really good value play that people should look at. If for no reason other than the fact that the Celtics have the most talent, and if they end up running away with the best record in the league, similarly to what I said with John Morant, you know you're not going to care about Jokic or you know uh, um, you're not going to care about Jokic or Kevin Durant or any of those guys if the Celtics just are five games better than everybody in the standings. And so I'm not saying I predict Tatum will win MVP. I still my gut still says Giannis. I think he's going to go on a run to end the season. But plus 500, it's pretty damn good odds considering I think there's there's a better than one in five chance that Tatum ends up winning the award. Um, that's seven straight wins for Boston. They are third in offense and fifth in defense during this win streak. The reason why that's encouraging is this is the first time this, this season they've been consistently good on both ends of the floor. To start the year, it was all offense and their defense wasn't very good. During the stretch where they were struggling, they were actually defending crazy well. It was their offense that fell apart on, a, on account of just them missing a ton of threes. Um, but during this stretch, they're killing it on both ends of the floor. So that's super encouraging. Malcolm Brogdon is playing ridiculously well during the win streak. I, I want to show you his per 36 numbers uh, because I think he's only averaging like 19 points per game. But per 36, Malcolm Brogdon during this win streak is averaging 26 points, 6 rebounds, and 5 assists on 55% from the field, 57% from 3, and 95% from the line. Just outrageous efficiency. Why am I bringing up per 36? Because when you get into the postseason, rotations shrink, they will play him more minutes. And right now, on a per-minute basis, he's playing like a superstar. So... Do I expect him to play like a superstar for the entire postseason? No. But my point is, is they have added a significant perimeter piece that makes them way better. And they're going to be able to play him 30 plus minutes in the playoffs. They're keeping his minutes down now because he's got a little bit of an injury history. But I expect them to bump his minutes up in the playoffs. And so that's really encouraging. The last thing I want to say about the Celtics, I had a lot of Celtics fans complain at me last week in the, uh, in, on Twitter and on the YouTube comments about my criticisms of them as it pertains to their postseason struggles. 
And I see a lot of things like, oh, Jason will just never be convinced that the Celtics are right, no matter how many games they win. And and, I, and one, one person in particular was like, oh, they're, they're, he's only going to finally get on board when they get the trophy. That's not necessarily true. There's a reason why I feel the way I do about the Celtics, and it stems from the conversation we had at the beginning of this show. What happens in the postseason versus the regular season? It's very different. Winning seven games in a row is impressive in the regular season, but it doesn't change the way that I feel about this team in the postseason. In last year's postseason, even when they were winning, in the Bucks series and in the Heat series, they were demonstrating significant um, inconsistency in their decision-making. So why did I pick the Warriors to win the finals in seven games last year, even though the Celtics, I said, were more talented? Is because I saw in playoff basketball, really informative playoff basketball, I saw the Celtics struggle against good teams with their consistency and execution and decision-making. So that was very informative to me about how the finals would go, and that's literally what got them beat. So what I need to see for me to trust the Celtics is not necessarily for them to get the trophy, but hey, let's say they play the Bucks in the first round or second round, or let's say they play the Nets in the second round, or let's say they play the, um, uh, the Celtics or the, um, uh, the Sixers in the second round. I want to see the Celtics put together a seven-game series against Kevin Durant, Giannis, Embiid, somebody like that, and consistently execute for seven games. Where if they lose, it's because the other team played really damn well and not because Jason Tatum stopped trying to drive and kick or Jalen Brown turned the ball over six times. That's what I want to see. I just want to see them show what they didn't show against the Bucks in Miami last year, which is take care of business when you have a significant talent advantage. Execute on a, on a game-by-game basis to demonstrate that you're dead serious about what you need to do to get the final trophy. Against Miami and Milwaukee last year, they were so talented that it didn't matter. Then they got to Golden State, who was nearly as talented as them, and it did matter, and they lost three games in a row. And when everybody knew they had to take care of the ball in game six, they turned it over 20 times or whatever it was that they did. That's So I'm not over here like, screw the Celtics. I'm not going to cheer for them or, or appreciate them until they get the trophy. No, no, no. We just got to, what is the best indicator of future performance? Past performance. The last time we saw the Celtics play in that playoff environment, they put together three bad playoff series in a row where they won two of them because they were way more talented. Show me some good playoff series. That's when I'll get on board. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. Like I said, we're going to be back tomorrow. Um, tomorrow, we're going to be covering three games, instant reaction style. Uh, Raptors, Bucks, Blazers, Nuggets, and 76ers, Clippers. As always, I sincerely appreciate your support, and I will see you guys then. volume Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere like at your pregame barbecue while you prep your meats that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch garage and the car inside and without the right home and auto insurance coverage the cost to repair this could eat up your savings so bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions.
I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.